Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. It takes courage to be funny, and Sarah Cooper can tell you all about it. She left a comfortable position in management at Google to become a writer and a stand-up comedian. But she took inspiration from her work, sharing a series of comics and blog posts with her observations about office behavior that eventually led to a publishing deal and her first book, 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings. In this episode, Sarah will tell us how she drew on her childhood dreams to validate the difficult choice to change careers. The value of sharing imperfect ideas early instead of waiting to refine them and how she's adjusting to the transition from employee to entrepreneur. Today I'm talking with Sarah Cooper, and she's got an interesting story. She was a Google manager who left Google to go become a comedian, and that is not a usual path. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you because a lot of the people who listen to my show are interested in perhaps getting jobs at Google or moving more in that direction. And it's interesting to talk to somebody who's gone off in a different direction. Yeah, I still get emails. I think I just got an email this morning from someone saying they wish they could work at Google. I mean, everybody wants to work there. And having worked there, I can understand why it's an amazing place to work. I've heard wonderful things. I have some friends who work there right now. And, you know, I've worked in big companies. And I know that there can be a sort of a comfort to having a big organization around you. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of security in it. I think the thing that I liked about working at Yahoo as well is just, you know, when someone asks you where you work, you say Yahoo or Google, they know exactly what you mean. <laughs> They've been to the website, they use the services. It's nice to be able to work on something that so many people know about, use, and so that was nice. And I think another advantage is that the feeling that you're like part of something bigger than yourself. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then you're going in a, in a very different direction. I think when you say that you're a comedian, I think people also get an impression. I'm curious how that's been. Yeah. People think it's one of the bravest things. You know, they don't know how I have the guts to get on stage and, and do what I do. And sometimes I don't even know how I have the guts to do it. It's not it's not an easy thing. But I've always been sort of a performer and love making people laugh, love making people feel at ease. And so it just sort of came naturally to me the first time I tried it. I was pretty drunk, but I did enjoy being on stage. I did enjoy having my own lines that I wrote for myself, my own stories that I was telling instead of acting, which was sort of a childhood dream. As an actor on a set, you're sort of the lowest person on the totem pole. You are told what to do, what to wear, where to stand, where to look, you know, like what to say. Everything is decided for you. And then the best actors will bring something to that, even with all of those constraints. But with stand-up, you really are your own director and your own actor and you're sort of, you know, telling your own story. And it's not really acting, it's, it's more performing. You're yourself and you're kind of telling your own story. So I really enjoyed that about it. 
does it feel like that when you're on stage? Like the story that you're telling is your own? Because I know that often when you're doing comedy, you have to rehearse and practice and you end up coming up with a routine that you're going to repeat on a regular basis. And yet you need to be genuine every single time. Yes. My husband has heard my jokes more times than he. <laughs> he could recite all of my jokes by heart. So yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I always will admire about, you know, someone like Robin Williams. I saw him perform in San Francisco. He did one set. Two weeks later, I had the opportunity to see him again. It was the exact same set, and yet no energy was lost. It was like he was doing it all for the first time. And then the day after that, he was on like some late night show, and he was doing some of the same jokes. And again, it was still funny, you know, even though I knew exactly what he was going to say. And so I think the best comedians are able to do that. Like you always feel like it's the very first time they're saying it. How do you find the energy for something like that? The audience gives you the energy, you know, it's like kind of a little bit of a nervous energy, but like you have 50, maybe sometimes 10 people looking at you. And so you kind of feed off of that. It sounds like you might have more of an extroverted personality than an introverted personality, being comfortable getting up in front of people like that. Yeah, you know, I always used to think that I was an introvert because I, I do enjoy being by myself, but I think I'm just a lazy extrovert. <laughs> I really enjoy talking to people and I really enjoy being around people, but I also enjoy sleeping and, and taking naps. I am very much, I do feed off the energy of, of other people. Well, certainly not a lazy path that you've chosen for yourself. Entrepreneurship compared to being an employee, it's very different. Yeah, it, it is very different. You know, when the founders of Google started, they had no idea what, what it was going to become. I admire that so much to be able to start something and not know where it's going to end up and not know what it's going to become. Because when you have no idea, it's very easy to quit. It's very easy to say, well, this is a waste of time. And so it's the same thing with starting the Cooper Review and starting writing and doing comedy on my own. And even today, it's just like, I don't know what it's going to be like a year from now, two years from now. It's still just a work in progress. Now, I understand you've got a book coming out. Tell us a little bit about that. The book is called 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings, How to Get By Without Even Trying. And it is based on a post that I wrote about two years ago called 10 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings, which went viral and was the impetus for me to create my own website and my own brand and eventually leave Google. And it's a sort of very tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic look at all the things we do in the office and meetings to impress each other and make it look like we know what's going on, even though we probably don't and probably haven't been listening. And so it's kind of put in terms of advice, like, hey, here's what you should do. But really, it's observational humor of what people do in meetings. Yeah, I, I know you've been publishing these blog posts for a number of years with your own artwork. Is this a compilation of existing things or is this a lot of new stuff? How does it balance? The original idea was to do a compilation of stuff that I'd already put out, but having it focused on meetings, the 10 original tricks are in there and then the other 90 are, are new that I haven't put out before. So it's largely a new work. Well, that's exciting. And that must have been a ton of work for you. Did you do that while you were still working at Google? No, I, I left Google, it'll be almost two years now. And then I got the book deal and started working on the book probably about six, six, nine months later. I'm imagining some folks at Google and at Yahoo might recognize themselves in some of your cartoons. Yeah, I was joking that I should have put any similarity to people living or dead is merely <laughs> coincidental. <laughs> I'm sure. So the book deal, you went through a traditional publisher to do this. Yeah, I did. I didn't really consider self-publishing just because I my audience was really small and I figured if I had the opportunity to use a publisher, maybe it would help grow my audience. So I was able to find a publisher and agent through my work, through putting my work out online. The biggest surprise was really they were excited about the idea, but 
more so they were excited about my audience, the fact that I had people that already liked this topic and already were excited about it, which just made it seem like, well, as a book, there would be people that would like it and people that would actually buy the book. So putting together the proposal, I kind of put together some of the ideas and, and kind of put teaser content in there, but then also talked about all of the people that shared and liked the article to begin with, and that kind of helped sell it. And so I was able to get a publisher to buy it. And I think that's kind of a point these days. A lot of publishers now are looking for somebody who comes with their own, what they call a platform, which is like the number of people who already follow them. Yes, very much so. I mean, it's kind of changing a lot of industries. I hear even models now are being booked based on how how many Instagram followers they have. And so, yeah, I mean, it's weird because I've been on the internet for a long time and just like, I never thought that it would get to this point where all of these people, the number of followers you have, the number of engaged people that you have are actually worth a monetary value. It could actually like bring you a new career if you focus on them, which I think when I first did my first tweet and I had my first follower, it never occurred to me that this could be something, but it really has become something for a lot of people. Yeah. And working inside of a company, you don't really get the opportunity to build up that kind of an external audience, although you do get a chance to build up your own internal network. I'm curious how you feel the, the differences between that external audience versus the internal network that you build. The internal network is, I think it's key. I think a lot of the people that I met at Google and at Yahoo have helped me throughout everything and are still there and are still people that help me and give me advice and I'm friends with. It's just more of a it's not spokesperson so much as you are speaking as a sort of representative of the company. You're still supposed to be a person that puts the company before everything else. Whereas when it's external, it's, it's really more about you. It's really more about putting yourself and your voice and what you want to talk about first. And I think for me, that was one of the big reasons why I felt like leaving was important for me to grow. I didn't want to feel sort of trapped by what I could say and what I couldn't say based on my employer, because I've seen so many sort of horror stories of people who've worked for certain companies and said the wrong thing or got a joke misinterpreted or whatever it is. And that was just bad for everybody. And I just kind of needed to take the plunge so that I could say and do and go after whatever I wanted to do. It kind of speaks also to the advantage of not having a single entity that is the only people who pay you money on a regular basis. And if you lose that job, you lose everything. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And that's, and that's important. <laughs> now, moving off in an entrepreneurial direction, how are you creating those income streams to replace what a company was paying you before? Well, the book deal has really sustained the first year and the second year. Luckily, I have a really amazing agent who was able to sell that book plus two more books. So I'll have another book coming out maybe next year, maybe the following year, depending on when I can get it done. And she was able to sell the book in the UK and Japan and Russia and all of these different places. And so it's really interesting how it's just sort of taken off. And each time there's a new publisher and a new location, that's a new advance for me. That's really been the biggest driver of income for me. Smaller source of income is ads and merchandise through my site, which is sort of ongoing and also just based on if I have something go viral and there's lots of traffic, then it's a great source of income. If it's sort of nobody's really visiting my site, then it's not. So it's not as a consistent source of income. No, that makes sense. How did you identify an agent to work with? That was interesting. I had an agent, I had a few agents contact me through my website, but the way I found my agent was through 
a former colleague of my husband's, my husband worked at Audible and he had a friend who works at Audible now and knew a lot of literary agents. And so I sent her my idea for the book and she put me in touch with four different agents or she gave me the contact information of four different agents. And then I emailed each of them and I heard back from two of them. And then one of the two of them was just so, so, so excited about what I was doing and really, really understood it. And so she was someone who pretty immediately I knew that she could be my agent. So it's like I was setting up to, I was, I had a Google doc of, of agents that I had collected from the internet and I was setting up to do cold emails but then this happened instead. So yeah, it was just kind of a good stroke of luck that I was able to be introduced to somebody. How did you know at the time that you were setting others up that you were actually ready to start talking to agents? I knew that I was ready because I had publishers who were interested in it already. And so I didn't want to be talking to a publisher without an agent. I didn't want to be talking to someone who knew <laughs> about the publishing world because I had literally no clue how it worked and I had no experience in it. So having a publisher interested, it was the impetus for getting the agent. That makes sense. So I'm going to take you back a little bit to before you got the jobs at Yahoo and Google. You said that you were interested in theater from a young age. How did you explore that and how did that manifest itself in your education and in your earlier work? I acted all throughout high school and I got a theater scholarship to University of Maryland and wanted to pursue theater, but my parents discouraged it as probably not a viable <laughs> career path, which, you know, they had a point. And I think on my own also, I, I struggled between acting as a sort of a visceral, you have to sort of be in your body and you have to really like be in touch with all of these things about yourself. And I struggle with that. <laughs> And there's a sort of fight between that and my intellectual side where I overanalyze things and I'm really in my head and I really want to like talk about things, analyze things. And so I think that was another reason why I decided to stray away from theater, even though I had this real appreciation for it. And I still do. I have an appreciation for the, any acting, really, any performance, really. But it was just a childhood dream that never went away. So even when I found multimedia design my last semester and I kind of pursued that as a career, it was just something that I was always sort of playing around with. I would take acting classes. I would audition for commercials here and there and small parts in independent films and things like that. And so it was always something that I was sort of doing and playing around with. I imagine that also helped with the amount of public speaking that's necessary to get the kind of work that you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a different muscle, but it definitely helps like in terms of putting yourself out there and having people sort of judge you constantly. Yeah. And in, in meetings as well, because I know that from your writings, you've applied a lot of the skills that you developed in terms of managing meetings and organizing people. Yeah, I tried to make meetings as fun, as interesting as possible, both for my team and for my own sake. You know, I would introduce maybe some improv games here and there to start the meeting just to get people like comfortable and do some things that would make status meetings that are sort of these weekly things that happen all the time and are just very, they can get very dull because everybody just knows what's going to happen. Try to like introduce some spontaneity into them so that people would be a little bit more interested to see what's going to happen because they're not really sure versus just knowing exactly what everyone's going to say. So yeah, that was something that I tried to sort of bring into my management style. In the conservative environment of an office, I think sometimes that could be scary for a lot of people. I'm curious what kind of resistance you might have come up against. I got no resistance. I mean, Googlers are the best. <laughs> a lot of them also are interested in art and have their own interests in music. 
And I was a designer too. So I'm in a room full of designers and people that like to play already. So I think if I was doing that in a room full of software engineers or product managers, yeah, I probably, it would have been like, what are you talking about? But I think the people that I was working with were already sort of artistically inclined. So yeah, I didn't get much resistance. Did you notice a difference when you were in terms of the things that you observed and then that probably played into the humor that you developed with different types of people in, in meetings? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was with hierarchies of if there's a... VP or someone higher up in the room and how people respond to what he says versus how people respond to the person that's brand new. And it's that sort of dynamic of people wanting to be seen and heard and respected. It was always very anxious. I always felt very anxious about, well, should I say something? Or, you know, is this going to sound stupid? You know, always sort of second guessing everything. A lot of that is just the environment of wanting to look good, wanting to look like you're on it and you're smart. You're supposed to be here in this room and things like that. So yeah, there was a lot of that. And being able to look through that and see the opportunities for humor, it's difficult to separate your brain, I think, from the experience that you're in versus seeing the meta experience that's happening around you. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to, I've always done that. I've always been an observer. I, I just remember in high school when I was doing a driver's ed class and uh, the driver's ed teacher had this thing where he would start almost every sentence with at any rate, even if it was so out of place and didn't make sense for him to be like, well, at any rate, you need to be behind the wheel. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, and so I started to they take marks every time I heard him say it. I'm a good driver, though. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I did learn something and I was able to pass the class. But yeah, I did sort of turn off the what is he saying thing into the OK, how is he saying that? And he's saying the same thing over and over and over again. And so it is kind of a shifting thing you have to go through. It sounds like a fun way to distract your brain when you're in one of those more boring meetings. Yes. But I know a lot of your humor comes from your observation of the behaviors of other people. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that you noticed that triggered these funny thoughts you shared? Well, the very first thing I noticed was back at Yahoo, maybe eight years ago, I was in a meeting and someone was presenting a data point and said 25% of people click on this button. And someone responded with, oh, about one in four. And I was just immediately struck by that and how smart it made that person appear just because quick math skills are always pretty impressive and everybody's sort of, oh great, we had a percentage, but now we have sort of a fraction that kind of makes this data point more accessible to all of us. And I wrote it down and I, I wrote that down and I wrote down, someone had drawn, <laughs> drawn a Venn diagram. And so those were the two things that kind of started, you know, when I started observing people. I think it was because I wanted to look smart. I wanted to be the person that said the thing that everybody was like, oh yeah, good point. So I think that's why I kind of started to observe these things. And maybe too, it was a little bit of an annoyance too of things that people would do that maybe it wasn't even that helpful or it didn't really add to the conversation. But for some reason, people did end up paying attention to that person more or respecting that person more. So I, I don't know, I think it was kind of a combination of, of a few things. I'm not even sure if it was humor when I was first noticing it. it was really more out of, oh, it's interesting that this person did this and everybody responded in this positive way. So it was more like that. Did you try any of these things yourself to see if they actually worked? Not consciously, but I, <laughs> you know, 
I definitely have said, let's take a step back here more times than I care to admit. And I think a lot of these things started out as things that are, are very helpful and maybe just over time and over repetition and over people imitating, they have become things that people just do not to be helpful at all, but just because they think that's what they're supposed to do. So most of them are things I've always wanted to try, but never really did try myself. I'm curious, we, you, now you have an audience out there and you've been sharing these things. What has what your audience resonated with, with the things that you've been sharing? I think the ideas around productivity and how everybody wants to be more productive and there's so much online about how to be more productive and how frustrating it is that I just have this joke about how to be more productive, you have to spend hours and hours reading about how to be more productive or you know, you'll know you procrastinate by spending hours and hours reading articles about how to stop procrastinating. I think everybody just wants to be better. So a lot of times the things that I'll do, like some cartoons around productivity and like the frustrations there or procrastination or just the sort of office situations, like the frustrations with being in an open office and just having really annoying sort of distractions in an open office type situation. So I would say just pretty much everything that's sort of frustrating frustrating about working in an office and trying to get ahead and trying to collaborate, but then also part of you is not that happy or maybe a little annoyed or maybe a little frustrated with having to do all of this stuff that maybe they don't want to do. So it's kind of like the frustrations of the office, I guess. I can see that. And I think it extends outside of offices as well. I can certainly relate to the I think I've got an audience full of people right now who are interested in process and are learning about it by spending their time listening to podcasts about process instead of actually doing things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm hoping that it'll enlighten them a little bit. And in fact, I was curious, I was, I was wondering if you could take us through your process because I mean, you, you, you wrote a book, that's a huge accomplishment and that takes a lot of time and energy, especially with all of the artwork that goes into every piece that you put together. How much time do you put into each one of these things? My process has changed a little bit. I think when I first really started with the Cooper Review, I was following the success of 10 Tricks to Appear Smart Meetings. And so I was kind of following that formula, which I still follow to some extent, but I would spend a month, six weeks working on a post, starting first with the text and trying to get the, figuring out what the joke was and figuring out exactly what I was trying to say with it. And then kind of adding the illustrations in after that. But that process kind of got a little frustrating because I would spend a ton of time on something, put it out there, doesn't do anything. Nobody really understands it or gets it or thinks it's funny. And so now I try to put stuff out there in smaller increments. I try to put stuff out there faster, like just tweeting something out. As soon as I have an idea, just kind of put it out there. And if something does really well, then turning it into an illustration or then kind of turning it into a longer post. So I'm sort of doing more like testing things and not like confining myself to, okay, I've got to like put a post out every week and it's got to be this long and it's got to have all of these things, but just sort of following the things I'm thinking about and the things I'm excited about at the time. The other thing that I do is I have like a list of ideas that I just keep a running list because when I sit down to actually make something, that's the worst time to try to come up with an idea because there's no creative input at that point. So almost all of my ideas come when I'm doing something else, when I'm taking a walk or doing the laundry or whatever it is is I'm doing. That's when I'll observe things and that's when things will sort of hit me in, in an interesting way. And I'll sort of keep a running list of those things. And so recently I did a post called Nine Non-Threatening Leadership Strategies for Women. 
that was something that I, I had an idea for a year ago. And so when I was trying to come up with an idea, I looked back at this list and I was just looking through the ideas I had a year ago and that was in there as an idea. And so that's where I found it from. And I sort of expanded the idea and just did some like really rough sketches of what each of the images would be. And then I have a Facebook group of friends and family. It's a private group of people that I trust and I trust their opinion. And I just shared a few of the ideas with them to get their input. And I did that a few times over the course of a week or so before I really honed in on it and finished it. So that helps a lot because as soon as you share it, even if it's just with a private group, or even if it's just with one person, as soon as you share something, you'll immediately start looking at it from a producer's perspective of how is this going to be interpreted and, and how are people going to see this and are they going to think it's funny? And so that has helped me a lot put things out that I've already thought a lot about and got, gotten input on and that I feel really good about. It's interesting because it's sort of a, a microcosm of the lean startup model around these ideas. You're, you're putting things out in their minimum viable form and testing them and then evolving something more complex. Yeah, exactly. These groups that you're working with, you, you said you've got an, an audience of people you trust whom you share ideas with to start with. Do you also have contemporaries in comedy or in writing or in publishing that you network with around your ideas and around your work? There are people that I certainly admire and whose work I look at and share and comment on and things like that, but no one that I really have collaborated with on anything as yet. It's something that I would like to do. When you evolved the process that you're going through right now, it, it sounds like you, you were originally trying to develop something complete and send it out there. And then you moved to the point where you realized that it was more efficient to go through a lot of these ideas and then refine. How many do you publish on a regular basis before you come up with one that you actually find you want to move, move forward with? I try to publish or put out something, whether it's just a quick drawing or a series of tweets or whatever it is. I try to do that every day. It's not hard for me because I'm, I'm constantly coming up with stuff. The thing about it is that it's quantity, not quality. <laughs> and so it, you need the quantity to figure out what the quality is, which what the quality ones are. Because I'm very sensitive. And so it used to be, oh my gosh, I can't put out something that doesn't do well. So therefore I can't put out anything. I would kind of like maybe put something out. And then if it didn't do well, I would delete it and take it away. Like, And I s still sometimes do that. But the more you put yourself out there and the more you allow yourself to fail, the easier it becomes to fail. And so the easier it becomes to like go through a bunch of crap before you get into the thing that might actually work. Whenever I have something or whenever I want to draw something or do something, I just try to put it out there as quickly as I can. I think a lot of listeners will probably relate to the idea of having trouble letting go of perfection. Yeah. Is that something that you struggled with? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And as a trying to be funny, you know, you always overthink, should I use this word or should I use that word? What's the punchline here? What's the optimum punchline for this setup? And it's just a constant back and forth. Talk to my husband about it and I'll be like, I, I did one where like, what if your coworkers were rappers? It's just such a simple idea of like, here are what your coworkers would be like if they were rappers. But I would overthink the title and like, is this the title that's going to set it up in the right way so that when people see it, they'll get the payoff? <laughs> like, I'm always just overthinking every single piece of it. And so at some point, you just have to be like, okay, it's fine, whatever, just put it out there. You need that kick. And that's the point at which you start getting feedback. I mean, unlike performing on stage, you don't get any feedback from what you're thinking about until you actually put something in front of people. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting that you combine the ability to perform on stage as well as produce in print form. I'm not sure everybody's as comfortable switching media like that. Yeah, and I'm I'm the type of comedian that I very much write 
my jokes. So I, I'm not like a riffer. I'm not like a, someone who's just going to talk off the top of their head. And so to me, it is pretty similar because I think about the jokes that I'm going to say on stage just as much as I think about the posts that I'm going to post on my uh, on my website. And I craft as much as I can each sentence, the way that I craft each sentence that I'm going to say. And so it's, it's pretty similar. That's one thing I don't really like about my stand-up is that I'm not as comfortable just saying stuff off the top of my head, which I wish I was more comfortable doing that. And some of my favorite comedians are able to do that really well. That's interesting. Are there comedians you've modeled yourself after? You know, that's a tough question because you, when you say modeled myself after, I don't want to say that I'm even remotely in the category of any of these people. <laughs> I want to make that perfectly clear. Caveats accepted. But the people that I look up to, Louis C.K. is my favorite comedian because he does observational humor so well and he lets people into his messed up thinking process and it's fascinating yeah i really admire him he's probably my favorite comedian yeah it sounds like robin williams was one of your early influences as well i wouldn't say that i would say that i admire him but i that's the other thing that i sort of had to learn i always thought you would look at someone someone like robin williams and be like okay to be a comedian i have to do that I have to be very physical. I have to be very like screaming, then quiet, then screaming, then quiet, and all over the place. That's success. That's what it looks like. And it took me a while to be like, I get up on stage and I stand with the mic and I tell my jokes and that's okay. That's how I perform. So I would say his style is not something that I feel like I could ever do. It's just not me. I'm just more reserved on stage, I think. And that's something that once I was able to be like, it's okay, my comedy, the way it is, is fine too. That helped me a lot, except myself on stage as well. I think that genuineness comes across when people see you and you're watching some of your videos, that sense that what you're talking about is coming from personal experience, I think is an important part of the, the work that you're providing. Yeah, it very much is. And my ideal hope for everything that I do is that it, it's evolving with me as my life changes, my work changes. And that's kind of what happened with comedy. You know, I started comedy, I was single, and I was talking a lot about how hard it was to be single. And now that I'm married, I can't really do my single jokes anymore. And that's okay. And it's the same thing with the Cooper Review. It's like, I don't really work in the corporate world anymore. So eventually, I probably won't be talking about the corporate world as much as I'm doing now. And that's okay. And that's my hope is that my audience will be able to come along with me on this journey. That's always a challenge because, you know, you're, you're attracting people with both the content as well as the presentation style and trying to find the genuine you. That's one of the places where being genuinely yourself will pay off, I think. Yeah, exactly. What about among other writers and cartoonists? Are there, are there influences that you've found inspiring? The person that really inspired me to start drawing was The Oatmeal. I saw him speak at South by Southwest, I think, three or four years ago. He's also started out as a designer, and I just noticed that his concepts, they just wouldn't work as text alone. I think that he is just able to take something that's sort of complex and just distill it down to this, just a single image. And I think, you know, he does that so well. And so that was one of the reasons that I started to learn how to draw and add visuals to my posts. It's amazing the, the way the industry of these daily web cartoonists has become something huge and established these days. Yeah, it is. And my publisher actually publishes other a lot of other cartoonists like Sarah Scribbles, and there's a lot of incredibly good female cartoonists as well. And they build up these huge, huge, massive audiences online a lot of times because they're able to create something that people relate to so well and so quickly. Because on the internet, people don't have an attention span at all. And so if you're able to create something that people get immediately, that's always huge. 
Absolutely. And I think you're tapping into these common shared fears about how people are perceived in the public that we all have. And you're putting them out there in a very funny way. Do people understand always that it's satire? No, they do not. (laughs) (laughs) I've gotten emails, comments. It started with the 10 tricks to appear smart meetings. It's actually the perfect punchline because you read the post and you, you might get a laugh out of that. But then you read the comments from people who didn't realize it was a joke. And they're even more funny than the actual post was because these people are sort of offended that there's a list of ways to appear smart in meetings because meetings should be taken seriously and people should listen and people should contribute and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, of course they should. This is a joke, you know? (laughs) So that's always funny. And I think the last post that I did, the non-threatening leadership strategies for women, a lot of people were very angry at that because a lot of the things that I do are told in the form of advice. And if you think it's real advice, it's the worst advice you could ever get. And so people will get very angry at the fact that I'm giving out such horrible advice. Some of your work also seems to come out of like an us versus them mentality, millennials versus boomers, in in this case, women. I'm curious if you draw a lot of your humor from your own background and which groups you identify with and identify as not being part of. Yeah, I'm Gen X. I try to draw from my own experience and I think that's what resonates the most, but it's also the scariest thing because when you first start writing, you'll want to appeal to everybody. You'll want to have your work be something that every single person, old, young, men, women, you know, no matter where they are in the world, whatever they will relate to. And that stuff is not fun to do. And it's actually, it's hard to do. And it all often ends up being not something that anybody relates to because it's just too generic. And so the more specific you can get, the better, but it's also scary because then you're sort of really putting yourself out there and you're really saying, this is my opinion on this. And this is my perspective on this. And then you can be judged on that. It's more of a risk, but I think it's a better way to go. That's interesting. It also forces you to identify who your audience is. And you're talking about how your content is going to evolve as your lifestyle evolves and as your your career evolves. But how do you define your audience in such a way that it can evolve with you? I don't know. I think I'll probably lose a lot of people (laughs) if I want to start talking about relationships and other things like that or start making fun of something else that I don't even know what it is. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a pretty big risk, but there's no there's no other choice because I left Google to do things that I'm passionate about. So if I create a box for myself (laughs) that I'm not allowed to get out of, then I've just recreated working for in the corporate world for myself. So I don't want to do that. So it doesn't really make sense. And you seem pretty comfortable with taking risks. Yeah, I am pretty comfortable. That's a very cool personality trait. I'm curious if that's something that's been with you all all your life or is something that you had to manufacture for yourself? I think I've always been a bit of a risk taker. I think my parents always thought I was naive, but I just always had an optimistic sort of, oh, just give it a try. What's the worst that can happen sort of view of things. I, I appreciate that a lot of people don't have that and maybe people have had bad experiences, but I think I just had a really, really supportive family, really supportive friends that I've never felt like I was jumping without some kind of net. Even if I failed, there was always a way through it or out of it or whatever it was. I never felt like, well, if I fail, it's the end. I've never felt that way. Are there experiences that you went through that you look back on and consider failures? Yeah, I mean, acting was a failure. I wanted to be an actress and I just wasn't good at it. I would consider that a failure. 
I feel like I, I'm very proud of the stand-up comedy I've done, but I don't think that, I think I could be so much better. And I feel like maybe in 10 years, I'll be as good as I would hope to be. So that's something that you think, oh, you know, you'll just be good immediately. But no, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years later, it's still something that like, oh, you know, you, there's so many things you want to improve about it. So I wouldn't say it's a failure because I'm still working on it. <laughs> but, but yeah. Do you have a vision for where you'd like this to take you a year, five years from now? Yeah, I'd like to maybe write for TV, maybe do more storytelling. A lot of the things that I do are very like a lot of nonfiction sort of advicey, sort of making fun of the whole industry of thought leaders and people telling you how to be better at your life and all that stuff. And it's sort of like poking fun at that. But I'd like to maybe create some characters and tell some stories, maybe having to do with that, maybe having to do with relationships and do more videos and things like that. It's nice that you have a built-in audience and you have book deals lined up. So you have a place to experiment with some of those things. Yes. If you look closely, you might see some of it. And then if some of it doesn't work, you might not see it because I will have deleted it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you're brave enough not to delete more things these days. These days, yeah. <laughs> what is your daily routine like? How do you get yourself through all of the things that you're trying to get done these days? I bought a journal called The Best Self or your best self or something like that. Anyway, it's a daily planner and I try to plan out my days as much as I can. I've gotten to the point where I can't keep everything in my head that I need to keep. I need to write down everything. I need to put everything in my calendar. You get to that point. When you first start, nobody wants to talk to you. Nobody wants to meet with you. You're just doing your own thing. So it's kind of a free for all. But at this point where I have a book coming out, I have book launch parties, I have interviews. There's a lot of things that I need to do to stay organized and try to get things done. And so the journal has helped a lot. I usually, I just, I work from home. I try to get outside at least once a day because if I spend the entire day inside, I will just not feel very good by the end of the day. So I try to get out, go do yoga, go for a walk, go to a coffee shop. Then I'll usually come back and kind of do more like focused work here at my workstation. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interruptions and distractions like Twitter and Facebook. And I have a horrible habit of putting something out there than just constantly watching to see how it's doing and if people are sharing it and people are talking about it and people are liking it. And I try to get out of that habit, but it's very hard. I think ideally I want to be more organized and I want to account for each of my minutes in a better way. But there's my organic, <laughs> like my soul just wants to kind of oh, whatever I'm feeling today is what I'll, ha what I'll do and what will happen. And it doesn't really matter. And so it's a constant battle between like, get it done, get it done versus, oh, it's fine. Get it done. Don't get it done. It's okay. I actually want to go do this over here now. And it, that has nothing to do with my goals, but I still want to go do that. So it's like a battle between those two. With your entrepreneurship as it's evolving, are you still an industry of one or do you have people helping you? I'm an industry of one and I would love to figure out how to get some help, but I don't know when that's going to happen because it's hard enough organizing myself right now. I don't know how I would add to that having to organize the tasks of someone else. So we'll see, hopefully someday. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you from a lot of the people that I've spoken to, it's, it's a revolution in their careers when they realize how to define and outsource specific tasks. Mm -hmm. I just sent out 15 books last week and I hired a task rabbit. That was a huge thing for me <laughs> to do. So it's like baby steps for me. But yeah, I've, I have friends that have outsourced just about all of these different pieces of their lives. And I'm like, oh, one day I'll do that. Baby steps, but it sounds like those are steps in the right direction. With all of the things that you're trying to get done, how do you keep yourself motivated? I just am sort of addicted to people who will relate to things that I do. I just feel like there's something about me that will never stop trying to make things that people love. 
So I think that's really what keeps me motivated. And I am excited about the success I've already had, but I'm even more excited about the success that I'm going to have hopefully in the future. It's always like, what's the next thing? You know, I'm always excited about the next thing that I'm going to do. So that's really what keeps me motivated because everything that I've done, the things that I've have done well, I had no idea they were going to do well. So there's an excitement to that of the next thing that I do that's going to do well. I don't know what that thing is going to be, but I really want to get to that thing. So that's what kind of keeps me going towards it. It sounds like an addiction, variable and anticipated rewards. <laughs> yes. So you, you mentioned you're keeping all your own records and you're using your own journal. What tools do you use? What tool set do you use to keep track of all of the things that you're working on? Google Calendar, a lot of the stuff is in a spreadsheet or several spreadsheets. I have a daily spreadsheet of things that I will be doing in terms of what I'll be putting my blog, what I'll be putting on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, what I'll be sending out to my newsletter, what I'll be trying to cross post on Medium or Huffington Post. And so that's sort of like my publishing thing calendar that I try to keep up to date and try to plan as far in advance as I can, which does not happen a lot of the time. But if I sit down and take some time to plan, then I can plan ahead and that would be great. So that's kind of the, the biggest thing that'll sort of keep me organized in terms of a publishing schedule. What about your audience? How do you maintain your, your email list and your publication? Are, are there services that you use for that? I use MailChimp to send out my newsletter and try to send it out every two weeks or so. And how long have you been doing the newsletter? Almost two years. And that's also a, a big step in a lot of people's careers when they actually start using newsletters. Yeah, it was huge. I mean, I and I didn't send out a newsletter for months because I was just too scared and I didn't know what to say. And because every time you send one out, you get a bunch of people unsubscribing. And so I would just be like, well, if I never send out a newsletter, then no one will unsubscribe because they'll just forget that they're on my newsletter. <laughs> but then I don't reach the people that I want to reach. So I've gotten over that too, of just like, well, I'm going to send this out and I'm going to have some people unsubscribe and that's okay. What's the response been like to the newsletter? It's been pretty good. I definitely have about I'm at over 16,000 people now, but I would say four or 5,000 people are inactive. So I need to get rid of them at some point. I just haven't done it yet. But a good strong number of them, of people, I would say maybe like 1,500 <laughs> of the 16,000 are really engaged. And I'll say, I'll do a giveaway and they'll respond. I'll, you know, have some other kinds of let me know about your idea on this and they'll respond. It's been fun. It sounds like you might've found your thousand true fans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those thousand I'm hanging on to. That's excellent. So for the fans who are just discovering you through this, how can people find you online? You can go to thecooperreview.com. That's thecooperreview.com because cooperreview.com was taken. So <laughs> make sure to use the the. And I have all of my posts on there and you can also link to Facebook, Instagram and all the other places I am. Awesome. You mentioned a ton of resources. We're going to be putting those all in the show notes. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you. This was fun. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>